0: Praise Fellowship. As David said, my name is Eric. I am the Independence Campus Pastor, and I am excited and honored to share with you uh, what God has been teaching me through his word, mainly Hebrews 2, 9 through 17. And if you're new this morning, we are in the second week of a series in Hebrews entitled, Jesus is Better. And Brad spoke last week in chapter one about the First four verses about how God in these last days speaks to us most clearly through his son Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see that Christ is more superior than the angels and has inherited a name more excellent than theirs. That the name of Jesus every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And if we want to know God, we look no further than Jesus and Jesus alone. And this morning, I'm excited to share with you uh, more into the humanity of Christ as well as the work of Christ. So join me with prayer. Father God, thank you uh, for your love, Lord, your love that came down to us. Lord, thank you um, For Jesus and what he's done, Lord, I pray that it would be crystal clear by the end of today that people would be more confirmed by the work of Jesus Christ. That he was uh, here not to just dwell with us, but was on mission and on purpose. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive your word um, here today. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're going to focus on Hebrews 2, 9-17. through 17. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, please turn and stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source." That is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. While chapter 1 focuses on the supremacy of Christ, chapter 2 focuses on the humanity and the work of Christ. And my first main point that we have to get is that the incarnation is central to the gospel. The incarnation, if you're new, simply means God in the flesh or God coming to this world. It's the reason why we celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the God of the universe transcending, emanating into our world. Not some jolly old man giving out presents and wearing a red suit. Christmas is about his presence dwelling amidst us. One of the most popular prophecies is Isaiah 714. should be in your bulletin says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. We also see the incarnation in John 1.14. Brad spoke about it a little last week. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of my favorite verses is two down, verse 16 in John. It says, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So through Jesus we have all received undeserved gift after undeserved gift after undeserved gift. Colossians 1.19 says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And Jesus, and we could stop right there at the incarnation, and it would be good. It would be the grace of God that, that God dwelled with our creation. Can you imagine, I was here last week, and I was just thinking, what does this mean? Can you imagine if Jesus was here in our service right now? Maybe he went to the first, maybe he went to the end. Can you imagine if Jesus was in our nursery? Can you imagine if Jesus was a middle school kid? Think about that. That's crazy to think about. What version would he use? Where, he, where would he sit? In the back, in the, in the front, in the middle? Would he be preaching? And I'm like, yes, come up here. You can, you can have this pulpit. Jesus and in the incarnation, but the incarnation by itself, guys, does not answer the why. It doesn't answer the why. There are millions of people all around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends that they know Christianity is about Jesus coming. Christmas is about Jesus coming, but they miss the why. And because they miss the why, Jesus never becomes personal to them. They just put up a a major scene. People put up a major scene because they're religious and that's what they do. They miss the whole point of Christmas and that's God and the flesh. And that's the greatest tragedy. This morning, I hope to make crystal clear through his word that a savior was born unto you to conquer and deliver you from your greatest enemies, your sin, the devil, and death itself. But this could only happen through the incarnation. Let's go back to your Bibles in Hebrews 2. We're going to camp out there a lot. And we're going to look for the incarnation of through those verses again. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That means man, incarnation. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, that's a key word, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers is this peer-to-peer relation. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That comes from Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm song, song, that speaks about Jesus and his time on the cross and him crying out to God. A little later, is this verse. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, or he would probably become like an angel. No, he helps the offspring of Abraham, us who put our faith in God. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priests in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Amen. Notice the key words in there. Fitting. Had to be. It was God's plan all along. Flesh and blood. Brothers, children, offspring of Abraham. Lower than the angels. See, in God's sovereignty, this was his plan that Jesus, the God-man, would be the Founder of our salvation, the source of our sanctification, and the pioneer leading us into a better covenant, better promises, and a better way. Not based on the works of man, but based on the work of Jesus Himself, who demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 15:13. Jesus says: No greater love is this than he who lays down his life. For his friends. That's why this gospel, this good news, is marvelous. It's magnificent. It's humbling. It's what Brad said last week about symphonies. I didn't know anything about symphonies until that. The Pachelbel's and D, and Mozart's Figaro, and Beethoven's Fifth. Did anybody Google that? I Googled it. I didn't know what it meant. I Googled it, created a playlist called gospel, listened to it, wrote this sermon while listening to it. So we're inspired uh, here today. But I say all that to say of Brad and I, what we're trying to communicate is that nothing in this world can ever do it justice of what the gospel means to us, what the gospel, the good news did for us. And so we can see all these great things in this world and we can say, yes, it's like this but it pales in comparison. The gospel's indescribable. It's glorious. The gospel says man's destiny is determined not by man's success or efforts, but by God's intervention into your life. Let me say that again. Your destiny is determined not by your success or by your efforts, but by God's intervention into your life. The incarnation is God's megaphone, screaming, crying, literally in the form of a baby, telling the world, I love you and I care for you. And I'll do anything to be in relationship with you. We see Jesus didn't just stay as a baby no, we see him grow up in wisdom and stature. He laughed. He honored his father and mother. He experienced the loss of loved ones. He was tempted, not less, but more. For we so easily give in to temptation. Jesus was tempted, yet never sinned, but was perfectly perfectly obedient even when it cost him his life. Jesus showed us that God desires a relationship, not religion. And God's purpose was that the whole world would be reconciled back to him through Christ. In Hebrews, we see it as to bring many sons to glory. Romans 5, 19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam, who represents us all. We all became sinners. The next part of that verse says, So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I have a quote from a commentary by Moeller. It says this, it should be in your bulletin as well. To save those who were flesh and blood, Christ himself had to become flesh and blood. To save the race of Adam, Jesus had to become the last Adam. In the incarnation, the eternal Son of God assumed a human nature. He was made of the same flesh we are made of and shared in our same experiences. Yet he remained without sin. Though he was the creator of all, he became hungry. He grew tired, he ate, he drank, he slept, he ate, he shared all these things that all humanity knows and experiences. He did this to save us. He's our great savior. And this is why I'm excited about Independence and Fort Thomas and what we're doing as a church that our elders, uh, Years ago, just didn't decide that we're going to build this mega campus and we're going to hold 5,000 people here off of Gunpowder Road. No, that we're going to go to the people of where the people are coming from. We're going to take the campus, take what we love about grace and go into the communities and be a blessing from the inside out to break bread with people, to be a light into a dark place. And so if you have given to the special offering, or you plan to, or just if you don't, it's okay. Just thank you. But that's what I'm excited about. It's at the heart of the gospel. It's central to the gospel, the incarnation, and we will go. God's plan all along was to make Jesus flesh and blood so that he would conquer man's greatest enemies. And our enemy number one is our sin problem. God pay the just punishment that you and I deserved. Hebrews two seventeen says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The key word is propitiation. We'll talk about that a little later. This is the first use of words from the author of Hebrews, of high priests. He uses it 18 times, more than any book in the Bible. 18 times. And Hebrews, uh, he continues to make this case and build upon this case that Jesus is our great high priest, our better high priest. His audience um, was people who relied very heavily on priests as a mediator before God and man, as a middleman to make right with God, and so back in the day, priests would offer endless sacrifices over and over daily for the sins of people. But people continued to sin because their heart was evil. In Romans six twenty three, it says, "For the wages of sin is death," which is not just a, a physical death, but it's a spiritual death, and that means separation for God. So, as man went towards sin. God cannot dwell with sin. He's holy. He's just. Scripture says that God's wrath was upon the sin that man committed. It's upon man. And so we all need a mediator. Everyone in this room needs a mediator. For we can't get right with God by ourselves. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look more into the case that Hebrews makes into the great high priest. So with, with your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 5.1. It's also in your bulletin if you need it. It says this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 5, Hebrews 5, 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, that's God, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so we see that this was, again, God's plan all along to make Jesus our great high priest. He was appointed by God, not us appointing, but by God he appointed him. It sounds like what we know from the Gospels when Jesus was baptized and uh, a voice from heaven came up and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. uh, Hebrews 7.26 says this, For it was indeed fitting, there's that word again, fitting, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, I want to read that again. that's pretty important. holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the ha- heavens. No man or pastor here in the whole entire world could ever fulfill that sentence. Let alone be exalted above the heavens. This is where John cried out, "Behold the Lamb of God!" who takes away the sins of the world. He's painting a picture that Jesus is our pure and spotless lamb. He was perfected by obedience and what he suffered as a man. It's the lamb of God. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, it says this. And church, I'm here to tell you that your sin, your every sin you've committed and that you will commit is forgiven by the blood of Jesus. We have a great and perfect high priest who mediates, who's the middleman who offered himself. And by the blood of the lamb, God says, I am pleased. It is finished. You are forgiven. And Jesus has secured our eternal redemption. He paid the, put, the just punishment that you and I deserved. Remember that propitiation word? It's a theological term. It's very important. You've got to get it. It's that sentence He paid the just punishment that you and I deserved. Propitiation is a satisfaction of God's justice, where God averted his wrath that was on us, on man. So the wrath of God on us, and he averted it, turned it. To Jesus on the cross. All the wrath of the world, his anger went to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus was tortured, he was slain, and he died upon the cross willingly and obeyingly to be the perfect Lamb of God. One of the best verses that explains propitiations is 2 Corinthians. 521 it says he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God Jesus who knew no sin became sin so that we might be right with God and yet if we're real with ourselves a lot of us still struggle with our conscience that we're not truly forgiven church what in your past still continues to haunt you today What brings you shame and guilt on a regular basis? If we see that scripture, in scripture, that God is fully pleased because of the blood of Jesus who represents us, why do you still feel like it's not enough? You still have to do works to be accepted by God. See, the reality, guys, is this is not just some doctrinal position that we believe in and that we have knowledge of and we can talk about it. This is an eternal, undisputable fact about why, what God says about you and what he has done for you. Eternal, undisputable fact. You are forgiven. So live that way. Don't live on your feelings, emotions, Your circumstances in life life, live on what God says about you. But the reality is, we oftentimes do believe the lies. And it's because we have an enemy. Another enemy. And this enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And he bombards us with lies. Contrary to the truth, and that enemy is Satan, our second enemy. God binds Satan and his grip on you through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. So who is the devil? What does scripture say about him? In Revelation 12, it says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, day and night. In Job 1.7, it says, when, when the Lord asks, Where do you come from, Satan? He says, From roaming the earth. And first John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in power of the evil one. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting, seeking someone to devour. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers for them to understand and to uh, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. About his character, John 8.44, Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And John 10.10, it says a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And there's a lot of people in this room. And um, I bet probably 20% we've had people that have broken into our homes. And I have. And it just it's this weird feeling. You just feel violated that someone entered into my house, my family, and stolen from me, right? Might get it. They're looking for Christmas uh, presents or whatever it may be. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Imagine if someone broke into your home with the sole intention of destroying you, killing you, destroying your family, you and your family, and then robbing of all your possessions. It should get you mad, right? Steal kill, and destroy. He's waiting, looking for someone to devour. He's against you. He hates you, and your marriage, and this church, and the word of God, and the church all over the world. Satan is our enemy, and he hates you. Today is our anniversary for my wife and I. She's actually out of town, and I'm watching the kids uh, and preaching, so it's a great combination but some of you guys know, some of you don't. But um, our first two years were rough. It was rough. We were both believers of the Lord. We we uh, loved God, loved each other, doing ministry. But we just didn't have the right tools of how to handle um, conflict and how to do it in a healthy way. Conflict's not bad. Bad conflict's bad. Um, and so we were struggling. We were continuing going on this downward spiral in our communication. it would be cyclical over and over. And we just were like, we just need help. We need help of how we relate to each other. And so we go to this conference in Louisville, uh, Family Life. So this this marriage conference, some of you guys probably have heard of it. And uh, we drive down there. And the first night, the first night, we get there. We're all excited. And we're eating dinner at a buffet. And... We kinda of fight and basically it started if she says something and I got a little passionate and I started raising my voice, not like screaming, but just like I'm like I'm now. I'm getting a little louder. And she was like, Why are you yelling at me? What's going on? I'm like, I'm not yelling at you, I'm just being passionate, whatever it may be. I'm not yelling. No now you're really yelling at me. What is going on? That was kind of a little glimpse. And so that night we fought so hard and it was just humbling and embarrassing to even say, but it was real, real life. And by the grace of God, we did not go home that night. Um, But we went the next morning and we sat about right there. And the speaker, which we're all gonna do right now, speaker said these words. Again, we're at the lowest of our lows. Speaker said, I want you to turn to your spouse or turn to your neighbor or your friend. So right now, turn to your neighbor or your spouse. And this is what he said. He said, you, tell your spouse, you are not my enemy. (laughs) It's funny. Some good responses. Guys, it's weird because we're looking at each other's in our eyes, this intimate moment at church. But hey, in all seriousness, jokingly aside, we were in the lowest of lows. We were rough, but right then and there, the word of God just opened our eyes that there is a greater enemy out to steal, kill, and destroy us, and I remember that moment, that Ebenezer, where I was like, that changed our marriage forever, hopefully forever, we're not at forever now, but it changed (laughs) our marriage, sorry, I'm going rabbit, Charles, it changed our marriage right then and there, you are not my enemy. In short, the devil detests God's being, God's character, God's purposes, God's people, and God's glory. We have an enemy, but we also have someone who's stronger, who's greater, who's better, who restrains him. Jesus gives us this allegory to illustrate this. Turn in your Bibles to Mark 3.27. This is a little gem in the Gospels. Mark 3.27 says this, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. I'm going to read that again. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house The reality, guys, is in this passage, the strong one is Satan. His house is this present world, which he seeks to hold secure. His goods are helpless victims, who he has taken captives as slaves, and they are powerless, helpless to defeat him. The stronger one is Jesus, who has come down from heaven, invaded Satan's domain, and has bound him. In Hebrews 2.14, Jesus accomplished this through his death. He destroyed the one who has power of death. That is the devil. Unlike Adam and Eve, who were deceived by the devil, disobeyed God and brought a curse to us all, Jesus overcame the devil in the wilderness by not giving into Satan's lies, but was perfectly obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of death. For this had to be done to disarm Satan's grip. Scripture says "Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, hanging on the cross, the better tree, became a curse for us so that we might not be enslaved anymore. Revelations 1, 17 through 18. Jesus says, it, or says this a little later. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Christ has broken your chains. Through the cross and through the resurrection, Jerry Bridges says, He died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that we were created to live. Free of chains. Free of slavery. Free of fear delivering us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son colossians 1:13 and church, please know that Satan is not fully defeated yet. He will be, but he's not fully defeated yet. He knows his time is short. His wrath is real against us. So as Ephesians 6 says, I implore you to put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. If we are not called to flee or to run anymore, there's no armor in the back. But we're called, we're, we're called to charge ahead, to march on, Braveheart style. You guys seen the movie Braveheart? Where they charge It's my favorite, favorite moment. Every time we charge ahead against Satan's schemes. For we have the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the, the shoes of readiness. These gospel truths have the power to withstand the devil. And we look to Christ who went before us, our victor who always leads us in the triumphal procession conquering our enemies. He is better. That's a good amen right there. (laughs) So we see our first enemy, our sin. We see the second enemy, the devil. And the third enemy that's coming against you is death and death itself. God, through Jesus, shatters your fear of death. Verse 15, Hebrews 2, says, and deliver all those who fear death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the ultimate leveler of all. Regardless of your success, your IQ, your moral beliefs, your skin color, death humbles us and opens our eyes to take an honest look of where our hope actually lies. We all have been affected by the fangs of death. And unless the rapture happens and Jesus comes back and, and takes us, who put their faith in him, with him, you will experience death. Look around you. You guys are beautiful people. We will all die. And that should make you mad. It should frustrate you. It should anger you. For this was not God's original creation. He didn't create death. He hates death. But death is something that we chose when we disobeyed God and went our own way. Death is inevitable fruit or result of sin. It's the consequences of it. As I was doing research with this sermon, I looked for why people fear death. Christians and not. Why people fear death. Number one, this should be found in your bulletin as well. The fear of pain. And so when death is at your door, people fear death because when death is at your door, they're afraid that there's going to be um, excruciating pain or suffering, torture that scares people. My personal uh, worst way to die is uh, drowning. Like, I'm a big guy. I, don't, I can't swim that well. I just sink. Drowning scares me really, really bad. It's fear of death. Second one is separation from loved ones. And this is a very, very hard one. The worry of what will happen to those who are entrusted to my care if I die. What will happen? Think about the people that you love right now. It's scary. I don't want to think about that. This wasn't God's original plan. The third fear of the unknown. Because, of our minds are, because our minds are limited and our experience is subjective, we simply just don't know in and of ourselves what is going to happen. And so whatever you believe about the afterlife, Christian or not, requires faith. Faith of some sort. Faith is believing something beyond yourself, beyond your capacity. The next, fear of non-being. Many people fear the idea that they will completely cease to exist after death occurs. Just like poof, nothing. It's also known as obliteration, whatever you want to call it. The last one, fear of everlasting punishment. The fear that people have is that they will be punished. There will be extreme pain and suffering for the sins that they committed while here on earth. The judgment will happen. And as Christians, you got to know there's hope. As Christians, we should not fear death. For perfect love casts out all fear We shouldn't fear in the pain and the suffering. And you could go through each one of these things. And we have a Savior who is made like man, who went through death by the grace of God and tasted death for everyone. We know what's going to happen after death because of Jesus and what we see in his word. It was God's plan that Jesus had to experience the very thing that is common to all humanity, death itself. He didn't just experience it. He conquered it by the resurrection, by the empty grave, providing hope and paving a future for all those who put their faith in Him. That's why Jesus is the founder of our salvation. And He says Himself, no one comes to the Father except through me. Death is simply the appropriate step towards a resurrected life. That was deep. Let me repeat that. Death is simply the appropriate step for a resurrected life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how our perishable, frail, weak bodies has to die so that we may receive the imperishable, the unfailing, the heavenly body that is able to live forever and dwell with God and behold his presence and his glory, his beauty. And so in thinking to close... I'm going to end with the verse it's John 11:25 to 26. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. The context of this verse is Jesus one of his good friends Lazarus just died. He was emotional and Mary and Martha were there and uh, he's uh, responding to Martha um, who says, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And this is what he says. It says, Jesus said to her, I am The resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die yet shall he live. And everyone who lives. And believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection. And the life. Whoever believes in me though he die. Yet shall he live. And everyone who lives. And believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's a question. Not for me. But the question from Jesus to you right now. Do you believe this? Do you see that it was God's sovereign plan to make Jesus like man, to defeat and conquer our greatest enemies? Do you believe it? Does it give you hope, joy? First Peter talks about this inexpressible and glorious joy welling up. It's bread leaping for joy. We should be joyful. We should be hopeful because we have a great Savior. Jesus is better. But the reality, guys, it's not everyone who does. And if you don't, I have to say this with love: without Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing. You are still enslaved to your sin and God's wrath still remains on you and you could have a million lifetimes over of good works and it will never get you any closer to God. It won't expunge your sin. You have a master and a ruler that lords over you. You think that you have this life figured out and uh, you have great success or whatever, but you are believing the lie because apart from Christ, you have nothing. And you should fear death. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It should keep you up at night. You should worry. You should be thinking, praying, figuring out what is there. Because there will be a judgment for your sin, for our actions here on earth. But we as Christians, if you put your faith in Jesus, we are not the ones who shrink back in fear, but we are the ones that charge ahead, looking to Christ, our Savior, our better high priest, who became sin so that we might become right with God, who bound Satan and defeated him through his death, through his death and perfect obedience, and that through death, our greatest enemy, the resurrection, that he is alive, he is living, and he's at the right hand of God. You know what he's doing? This is crazy. He's interceding for us. He's mediating between us right now. Do you believe this?